Okay, you can open your Bibles to Titus, book of Titus, chapter 1. We'll get to this text in just a second. With a damp and dirty towel tied around his waist and a basin of filthy water in his hands, Jesus rose to his feet. He had just washed the feet of his disciples in the upper room, even including those of his betrayer, Judas. And that was an act, if you're familiar with the text in John 13, that was generally reserved for the lowliest of house servants, but was now performed by the Son of God. When Jesus performed that act of washing his disciples' feet, it unsettled his disciples to the point where Peter protested and said, Lord, no, never will you wash my feet until Jesus explained to him the purpose of the washing. And then Peter relented and said, okay, uh, how about wash all of me? And you know the story. What was happening in that moment as Jesus, the Lord of glory, knelt down and did the work of the lowliest of house servants was that he was giving a lesson on spiritual leadership. Specifically, he was giving a lesson on Christian leadership. If you remember the account, Jesus begins by affirming his status as teacher and Lord. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. That act of bowing and washing the feet of his disciples was not a repudiation of Jesus' lordship. It was actually an expression of the type of lordship that he possessed. His was a servant leadership, a humble lordship. He then instructs his disciples to follow his example. The whole reason he was doing this was to give them an example to follow. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, if we truly want to follow Jesus, and this applies to everyone, even though we're going to be focusing on Christian leadership, if we truly want to follow Jesus, we will have to learn to give ourselves humbly in service to one another. If we are to be those who lead, then we must also learn to lead with humility. In that moment, Jesus was setting the standard for Christian leadership. And he was setting the ceiling of human pride. If he was willing to kneel down and do this act of service for his very unworthy disciples, then we have no business elevating ourselves any higher than that. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so again, by that act of humble service, Jesus was setting the ceiling for human pride. If he, the master, was willing to lay aside his status to serve others, then how much the more all of us who claim to be his followers. Every time his disciples would act in pride, it would be as if they were exalting themselves over Jesus. He was willing to bow the knee and serve his fellow disciples or his uh, disciples. Anytime we determine that we are unwilling to do that humble act of service for one another, we're simply saying we are of greater worth than he. Their every claim to status or prestige would be a claim of greater worthiness than Jesus who laid it all aside for sinners. And again, of course, that's the account from John 13. From thenceforth and forever, followers of Jesus would be forever constrained by that act of humble service. Proud, arrogant, looking down upon others, refusing to serve others, any act of such pride would be as if we are saying, I am worth more than Jesus. Could you imagine being struck with the fact that 
we've been poisoned by arrogance or rivalry or conceit or, or pride. And then, and then having that vision of the Lord of glory bowing before his disciples and washing their feet. If we, and if they, especially if elders, are to be faithful under-shepherds, then we too must learn to live not for our own pleasure, but in service to others. And so look at Titus chapter 1. As Paul described for Titus the qualifications for men fit for eldership, remember last week or the week before, he told them, first of all, that elders are to be above reproach. Qualified men who stand beyond legitimate criticism or accusation. There's nothing hanging out there that allows others to say, wait a second, you shouldn't be teaching others because of this in your life or this in your character. But then Paul goes on in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3 to expand upon what it means to be above reproach. Be above reproach, and that would look like these things. And so let's read that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And some of you may be coming here saying, well, how is this relevant to me? Is very relevant to you. Number one, if you're a Christian, it's relevant to you because all that elders are called to be or spiritual leaders are called to be are simply examples for every other believer. Elders, pastors are called to be exemplary. And so everything here, really, except for maybe that idea of being able to teach, uh, is expected of every single believer. And so very, very relevant. So as we talk about arrogance this morning, understand that this applies to all of us. It's also very relevant because a passage like Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy 3 is given to us to equip the church so that you as a congregation understand you have an authority and a responsibility to appoint men to the office of eldership who have this type of character. So really what we're doing this morning is equipping, training and equipping you as a congregation to know your calling. Look for men who have these uh, characteristics as you're called upon as a church to appoint men to eldership. I hope that you've taken seriously that calling, and so you've submitted to teaching like this to say, okay, now I know what I'm looking for. Extremely relevant. And so, look in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. And so we begin looking at this list of qualifications. Arrogance can be translated self-willed, obstinate, stubborn, overbearing, or more literally, simply one who pleases himself. It's that person who puts himself above others. This word is only used one other time in Scripture, and it's, that's 2 Peter chapter 2, and it's used to describe the stubborn rebellion of unbelievers. The Lord hates arrogance. It's on His divine hate list. Proverbs chapter 16 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. 
And that's the writer of that proverb saying, because the Lord hates evil, I hate arrogance and pride. Arrogance is an abomination to the Lord because it's tantamount to self-worship. It's taking the focus off of God and putting it on self. Whereas man's chief duty is to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, an arrogant man simply loves himself. He puts himself and his will before God and before others. We probably have some arrogant people here this morning. These are those who, when inflamed, see arrogance driving them to rebel against God. Arrogance, when inflamed, does rebel against God. It destroys relationships. It disrupts harmony in the church, directly challenges the law of Christ, which is to love one another. Arrogance is the antithesis of love, and so it has no place in the life of a Christian, let alone an elder. The arrogant man or woman is one who puts themselves before others. Their desires, their opinions, their feelings, their pleasures... Such a man is likely to use people instead of serve them, dominate people instead of lead them. Needless to say, arrogance is a fatal flaw. It's a fatal flaw which disqualifies a man from eldership. And so this is important for us as a congregation. Uh, In this whole process, you look at a church and you say, okay, well, how does that arrogant, dominating, authoritarian man end up in the position of elder? But then you realize that oftentimes a man ends up in that position because the church has put him there. Congregations, churches are guilty, frankly. And so here's a warning. Many congregations have a desire for rapid church growth. How many conversations you have with your Christian friends? Oh, how many people go to your church? Oh, our church is growing. It's so it's expanding so much. And you like to have those conversations. We can be guilty of adopting the world's philosophy of leadership because we want to see the church grow and we really define growth as numerical growth. There are churches who prioritize getting things done over doing things Christ's way. Consequently, the lust for growth blinds churches to the fact that beneath those desired qualities of assertiveness, we want a pastor who's driven Behind those desired qualities lurk the disqualifying traits of obstinance and stubbornness and selfish ambition and pride. Their desire for ministry growth seems a lot like Israel's desire for a king. There are those who make fleshly decisions for short-term benefit without heeding the Lord's warning about giving authority to such arrogant men. What we're going to say this morning as a church is that Since Jesus has promised to build his church, it's Jesus who builds the church, not the pastor, not the elders. Since Jesus has promised to build his church, so then we should submit to his design for the church. And trust that sometimes God's designs seem very counterintuitive. And so whereas we want the driven, assertive, CEO-type leader who can bring the church to the next level, we're given a list of humble character qualities and said, no, this is what you should look like, you look for. But we submit to that because we recognize that Jesus is the one who builds the church ultimately. So this morning, we're simply going to consider arrogance and how it disqualifies a man from eldership. And I'm very proud of this sermon, so please listen up. (laughs) That's the only joke in the whole thing. 
we've already looked at the fact that a pastor is an under-shepherd. That is, a pastor has been entrusted with Jesus Christ's flock. A pastor is a shepherd who understands he's not the ultimate shepherd. These are Jesus' sheep. This is Jesus' church. We're simply entrusted, and so this is a stewardship. Stewardship and arrogance are not compatible. Stewardship says, I'm not the owner. The master is the owner. So then the way that I do things and why I do things is always submissive to the will of the master, and I can't take those things into my own hands. An arrogant man will likely confuse stewardship with ownership. He's going to assert himself in areas which are beyond his authority. Whereas ownership can focus upon the submission and service which it is owed by others, stewardship is driven by the submission and service it owes to others and to its master. The pastor who understands that ministry is a stewardship continually defers his own desires to that of the Lord. He will employ the Lord's means, the Lord's methods. He will measure success according to the Lord's standard and not his own. And he's going to do all of this for the Lord's glory and not for his own. He will not rest on his own ingenuity, his own novel methods, his own inventive means, nor will he measure success by his own standards. Instead, he's going to operate in total submission to the Lord's design for the church. It's in that spirit that the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that you have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to oversee the church which the Lord has purchased with his own blood. It belongs to him and you're simply stewards. To forget that they served over the Lord's people at the Lord's pleasure would be to allow arrogance to creep in and so disqualify them from service. Remember that man in 3 John? We don't talk about him a whole lot. That little book, his name is Diotrephes. And John wrote and said, hey, we wrote to the churches. We would have liked to have come, but that man Diotrephes has kind of taken over and he doesn't allow the brothers to visit. There's a man who forgot that his was a stewardship and confused it with ownership. Unlike Diotrephes, of whom John wrote, likes to put himself first and not acknowledge our authority, the faithful elder instead stands with Paul, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The problem with arrogance is that an arrogant man will believe the church belongs to him, first of all and that it exists to serve his ends. If a man believes the church belongs to him, and maybe you've experienced this, if a man believes the church belongs to him, then he's going to view people as the stepping stones for his own success or his own notoriety. He wants quick growth, building program, rapid expansion. He's building his own ministry kingdom, believing that the results can be credited to his own efforts, his own ingenuity, his own leadership. Look what I have accomplished. If a man feels that way, then what do people become? The congregation then are not those who are to be served. They're not sheep to be led. Instead, they're mere stepping stones on the pathway to his own success. And if that's the case, then anybody who stands in the way of my personal success, now I look at it as not somebody to be led or taught or discipled, but simply as an impediment that needs to be removed. People become dispensable in this man's drive to accomplish his personal goals. In this way, again, the arrogant man forgets that ministry is about people. He loses sight of the fact that as their spiritual growth and success uh, that their spiritual growth and success must come before any vision he might have for ministry. It's the arrogant man 
who sees the church as a platform for which he can launch his own ministry. The pastor who measures success by... Back it up a little bit. There's another danger in our society for a pastor or elder who is arrogant. Because if you look across Calvary Baptist Church, we have a little bit lower attendance today. It's okay. It's summertime. Some are in Spain. Some are in China. Uh, there's an allure out there that potentially I could go onto social media, YouTube, a blog, Twitter, and I could garner a following online. And how long would it take me to get more followers than, say, 125 people? I don't know. Seems like it wouldn't take all that long, considering you have a global audience. The temptation for an arrogant man is that he will look outside the church for notoriety and success. The church then simply becomes the platform from which a man can launch himself so that he can have his ministry out there. There's a real danger there for men, especially the arrogant man. The fact of the matter is God's design for eldership is that the local congregation affirm a man whom the local congregation has observed, the local congregation knows, the local congregation has relationship with. And then that man then is appointed to leadership by that congregation. The allure and the danger of the online world is that you're receiving teaching and preaching from a man about whose character you know very little. You know that the average church in Canada is generally under 200 members? Seems like it'd be a whole lot easier to get more followers than that online. The arrogant man is going to lean towards whatever direction in which his ego is the most stoked. There's a danger there. The humble elder, on the other hand, does not have a lust for recognition or reward. Instead, like a faithful servant, he serves without accolades. He heeds the Lord's admonition. In Luke 17, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done that, what was our duty? Arrogance disqualifies a man from eldership because an arrogant man will see the church as his own kingdom, people as his own servants, and the ministry in the local church as a launchpad for his own self-aggrandizement. Number two, arrogance disqualifies... Because it'll cause an arrogant man to see others as irritations, frustrations, and inconveniences. Elders are called to minister to the weak, to the weak consciencest. We'll explain that in a second. The slow growing, the backsliding even, and the sinful. If a pastor's goals are of higher value than the spiritual growth of his people, then that man will begin to see such weak conscience, slow-growing, backsliding, sinful people simply as what? Baggage to be shed. You know the Bible says that we're to bear one another's burdens? Bearing one another's burdens, you could say bearing one another's baggage. And so we come together and say, I'm willing to walk alongside you in your discipleship. You're going to bear some of my baggage, and I'm going to bear some of your baggage, and we're going to walk together in perseverance all the way until that day when Christ returns. The pastor who looks at the church as a launching pad for his own ministry looks at all the baggage around them and says, oh, it's all weighing me down on my path to my own notoriety. He can be dismissive, impatient with weak people. Their weakness, again, becomes baggage to be shed instead of burdens to be borne. He, unlike Jesus, is not sympathetic towards the weaknesses of people, but frustrated by them. The faithful elder 
has to have the attitude that Paul encouraged all believers to have. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, We urge you, brothers. And again, if you're thinking, this isn't practical for me, this is about elders, well, wake up. This is for everybody, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's our calling, right? Are you frustrated with a fellow church member right now? With their weakness? Their constant failing? Their faint-heartedness? This is an encouragement for every one of us. Bear one another's baggage. People can often be frustrating. That frustration can lead to impatience. Impatience, in turn, can tempt a pastor to resort to fleshly means to deal with problem people. The arrogant pastor will take matters into his own hands, attempt to bully people into compliance even. In his prideful impatience, he'll refuse to employ God's means and methods and instead resort to his own. It's that temptation to bully and dominate, and that is a real temptation. We know that because Peter uh, has to tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we are to shepherd the flock of God as God would have us, not domineering over those in our charge, but as examples. And so that temptation is always there. A faith-driven patience and humility are essential in order to protect an elder from reactive impulsively or pridefully when dealing with or being challenged or frustrated by weak individuals. Next of all, a humble pastor will maintain, maintain a continual awareness of his own potential weaknesses. Many pastors see themselves as existing above the church. The teacher, not a student. The leader, not a follower. The physician, not a patient. The church needs me. I don't need the church. This is very evident when a man ceases being a pastor. This is a sad commentary, but there are many situations where a pastor, after preaching for many years about the value of the local church, then retires from being a pastor, and then you really see the proof because he himself views himself as above the church. His church attendance begins to wane, and he's no longer faithful to the congregation. Why? Because a whole while he saw himself as the one whom the church needed and not one who needed the congregation. Humility requires a recognition of one's own weaknesses. You can be sympathetic and helpful to those who are weak in the faith because you recognize your own weaknesses. I need the church. I need your spiritual gifts. I need the means that are means of grace that are at work here. I need that, and you need that, and no one's above that. The arrogant pastor fails to recognize this. He's above all people. Instead, he should be humbly aware of his own weakness. He should recognize his own frailty, his own inability, his own need for the church. Also, Humility is required, and again, very, very practical here for all of us. Humility is required in spiritual leadership, and it's required in living out church life in general. Because we will be called upon in dealing with those who are weak-conscienced at times to limit our liberty for one another. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 8. While the elders patiently teach and exemplify Christian liberty, the elder recognizes that there are men and women in the congregation whose consciences have not yet been fully formed by Scripture. And because their consciences have not been fully formed by Scripture, they're not aware of or they're not willing to embrace all the Christian liberty that they have in Christ. And so there are those who have personal constraints in their life, and they might become offended when you exercise your Christian liberty. And you say, well, wait, it's not sinful what I'm doing. 
but it's hurtful to others and it might violate their conscience and it becomes a stumbling block to their faith. And humility says, I'm willing to lay aside some of my own Christian liberty for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ. We're all called upon to do that. Again, we don't have time, but if you look at Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10, and understand we're called on in humility at times to lay aside Christian liberty out of love for the spiritual well-being of one another. Uh, elders especially are those who are called upon at times to limit their liberty for others. The arrogant man will say, well, who am I or who are you uh, to judge or to dictate to me how I ought to live? We must be humble because we deal with weak individuals. We also must be humble because we're called upon and you're called upon even to deal with difficult people. Does the Lord have a sense of humor? I don't like The fact that he's thrown the church together the way that he has with people from all different backgrounds and all different personalities, all different experiences, and said, you know what the evidence will be that you're my disciple? is how you love one another. That's interesting. That's a challenge for you, and that's a challenge for me. The fact of the matter is, we got to deal with difficult people. At any given time, a pastor is charged with patiently ministering to proud, critical, argumentative, and divisive individuals. He's called to deal graciously with unbelieving opponents and even to maintain a godly testimony in a hostile culture. When an arrogant man is challenged, how does he respond? Digs in his heels, becomes defensive, verbally attacks. This is especially dangerous or hurtful, I think, when it comes to a pastor who has a gift of teaching. Because a pastor or a teacher who might have a gift with words, then coupled with his arrogance... He uses that and lashes out with his tongue. He's willing to give others a verbal pummeling, harshness, argumentativeness, dismissiveness. Those are all tools wielded by an arrogant man who has found himself in a position of leadership. Proud, divisive, argumentative people can't tolerate what? Proud, argumentative, and divisive people. Sometimes your problem with that other person is that you detect pride in them and their pride is challenging your pride. Their pride is challenging my pride. Their arrogance requires that they tear down one another. In contrast, the faithful elder understands that what? A soft answer turns away wrath. He who is slow to anger quiets contention. He does not see the difficult person as a challenger to be defeated, but as somebody who could be patiently won over to Christ and who could grow and develop spiritually. We're going to return to this text a little bit later, but this is essential. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, essential for pastors, teachers, elders, also essential for all of us, especially if you are that online debater. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. This morning, do you count yourself as the Lord's servant? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. And you say, see, there it is. I get to correct my opponents. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. And with what attitude and what motivates us to patiently endure evil and to teach patiently and to correct opponents with gentleness and to make sure we don't quarrel, what motivates us to have that type of countercultural attitude? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And Paul acknowledges there that the opponents in question are those who seem to be doing the bidding of Satan. I mean, that's how severe this is. Ensnared by Satan to do his will, and is this caliber of rebel with whom we are called to be patient. Gentleness, patience, endurance, and a refusal to argue. None of those things are possible in the face of opposition if a man or a woman is arrogant. An arrogant man says and does and reacts however he pleases. Faithful elder, on the other hand, is under constraint. I can't respond the way that I want to. I can't say what I want to say. I mean, I've got that humdinger all lined up, and I could humiliate this person in the moment, whether it be online or in person, but I can't. Why? Because I'm a man under constraint. Because you're a man or a woman under constraint. We belong to the Lord. We serve Him. And so we got to be gentle. We have to be patient. Why? Because our desire is that ultimately this individual can be won, not defeated. The faithful elder preaches the word reproving, yes, rebuking, yes, and exhorting with what? With complete patience and teaching, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Well, next of all, not only is an arrogant man disqualified from eldership because he's called to work with weak, conscienced people, those who are struggling in the faith, not only because he's called to deal with difficult people, but... An elder is also called, as we've seen a few weeks ago, to deal within a plurality of co-equals. How in the world can a man serve or lead a church within the context of a plurality of fellow elders if he's arrogant? The relationships of interdependency and mutual accountability which are required in the plurality of elders are really short-circuited by arrogance. They're impossible if the elders involved are poisoned by pride. Instead, Say, instead of a fellowship of co-equals, what happens if, if one among them or multiple elders are arrogant is that either it becomes a group of individuals where one leads and the rest are just submissive yes-men who constantly or consistently capitulate to the one dominant individual. Or what happens is it just becomes a group of multiple arrogant men who are always quarrelsome. Either way, it's an unhealthy arrangement. This is especially true if it's the senior pastor who's arrogant. Instead of seeing himself as the first among equals, he sees himself as the irreplaceable leader. Everything hinges upon me. What would this church do if I wasn't here? Sadly, many churches are guilty of the exact same thing. Congregations are just as guilty. Congregations who view the success of ministry hinging upon that one man at the top. And so what happens in such situations is maybe an arrogant man finds himself in a position of leadership. The church and those who work most closely with that individual understand that there's something wrong, there's something amiss, the character's not right, there's no humility there. He gets things done, but the character seems to be off, but then nobody says a word. Why? Well, because the whole ministry kingdom that he rules over and that we all benefit from, and and look, it appears as if it's doing good, and so we dare not say a word. Because then if he falls, perhaps the whole ministry falls. And in that way, the congregation is just as guilty propping up a man who's polluting Christ's church through his self-willed leadership. Again, that's an act of pride on behalf of the congregation, saying that we're going to do things our own way instead of submitting to the Lord's design for leadership. Well, there are a few other 
disqualifications, we could say, that flow out of arrogance, fatal character flaws which disqualify a man from leadership. Look again at our text in, first, or in Titus chapter 1. It says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. And I suggest to you that that quick-temperedness flows right out of arrogance. First Timothy chapter 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Quick-temperedness, violence, quarrelsomeness all flow out of arrogance, and they all disqualify. The arrogant man believes that he is owed respect. Are you that type of person who can't handle it when you feel you've been disrespected? The arrogant man or woman believes they are owed respect, honor, privilege, service. So what happens when that individual doesn't get what he thinks he deserves? Well, he can't, he can't handle that perceived injustice. He can't handle that perceived disrespect. And so he loses his cool. He's quickly angered, then argumentative, even potentially violent. James analyzes such a man in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. He's saying you have these internal passions, you want what you want, and you better get it, and if you don't, you're going to go to war. Because the arrogant man is self-willed, he's quick to indulge in his own passions without self-control. He's willing to quarrel and fight for his own way using fleshly tactics to get whatever he wants. And let's just take a break here, make it really practical, and say that husband, if that's you, you're in the wrong. Wife, if that's you, you're in the wrong. If you're causing disruption in your home because of your arrogance, you need to repent, right? Uh, This is basic character qualities of a Christian, not just an elder. Like a petulant child, the arrogant man throws a fit when he doesn't get his own way. Because of his anger and pugnacity and violence, it really makes him an unapproachable bully. And such a man or woman actually gets what they want basically all the time because nobody wants to approach them. Because approaching them is like lighting the fuse. Not because they agree, but because they don't want to deal with the temper. For most people, it's just easier to give in than to go to battle with that arrogant man. And so again, he gets what he wants. Consider what the Bible says about anger in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16. It says, One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. He acts like a fool. Proverbs 19, 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Let's summarize all of that. Whereas a qualified elder is sober-minded, an angry man lacks sense. Whereas a faithful pastor is to be self-controlled, an angry man is undisciplined in both his passions and reactions. Whereas a qualified elder is respectable, what did we see in Proverbs? An angry man acts like a fool. Whereas a godly elder is a peacemaker, an arrogant man is a cause of argument and division. Have you ever gone to visit somebody's house and you look around and you say, oh, where'd that hole in the drywall come from? 
acts like a fool. You're the one that's got to fix it, man. As is clear from all of this, a man given to anger is far from being above reproach and is therefore unequivocally disqualified from eldership. Anger, quarrelsomeness, you've already dealt with this a little bit, but that's an ever-present temptation for an, for an arrogant man. Can't stand being disagreed with. Listen, I have 30, well, this has been 36 minutes. Probably going to be about 45, okay? So just as a warning. I have 45 minutes every Sunday to have a one-way conversation. None of you, thankfully, are raising your hands and challenging me right now. A pastor or elder can become so accustomed to being able to share, oftentimes his sermon being so interwoven with Scripture and his own opinion, to, to, to share what he wants to say unchallenged, that when he does face challenge, when he does face disagreement, he can't handle it. That's a challenge to his pride. And so he often responds with quarreling, argumentation. This is a man who can't conceive that others who disagree with him might potentially be correct, or even partially correct. This is that pastor who likes to throw away the throw around the term heretic. How does he define heretic? Anybody who disagrees with me. <laughs> there are a number of aspects to the office of elder which require a man to be measured in how he responds to disagreement. How will a quarrelsome man respond to a dissenting fellow elder? How would he respond to the church member who's taken issue with something he said in his sermon? How's he going to respond to that guy who decides not to agree with him on social media? How's he going to respond to somebody who comes up to him after a sermon, says he disagrees? How's he going to react to a godless culture? Each of those require a man to be wise and measured in his word. This is a discipline which is entirely foreign, it seems, to an arrogant man. A pastor should not be quick to argue. Yet sometimes it's the pastor who is, seems to be the most justified or feels the most justified in arguing. Pastors, teachers, spiritual leaders deal in the realm of absolute truth. This is authority. The Word of God is authoritative truth. It's absolute truth, and we deal in that realm all the time. And so the arrogant man can oftentimes forget what our primary issues and what our secondary issues and what our tertiary issues. And so uh, I can get to the point where just about everything I say, I think, carries the same authority. The arrogant pastor may see himself as courageous and resolute and uncompromising when in reality he's actually pugnacious and stubborn and opinionated. This is that man who's forgotten that while he's called to refute error, he's also called to speak the truth in love. He's supposed to speak it with patience and kindness and humility and gentleness and deference. This is... Important for us to recognize because in our current cultural moment, the hyper-politicization of our culture has brought about really the extinction of nuance. Nobody wants a nuanced response. Nobody wants a middle-of-the-road or moderate response. We want far left. We want far right. We want black and white all the time, right or wrong, good or evil, without the possibility of empathy or compromise from one side to the other. What happens in such situations is the humanity of the other side is lost. So we view one another as simply the ideas with which we disagree. And so then we treat them as if they're simply ideas to be defeated instead of people to be won. This is exacerbated by social media where tribes of dissenting people fight with what? Just like online avatars of one another. 
there's some, something significant about a face-to-face conversation. If I say something and I see you nodding in agreement, that's helpful. I know we're on the same page. If I'm speaking to you and your brow becomes furrowed, face becomes a little scrunched up, kind of tilt your head a little bit, I understand, okay, maybe I need to explain where I'm coming from a little bit more. You don't have to say a word, but I understand maybe I'm going in a direction where I need to elaborate. I mean, need to be a little bit more nuanced here. Uh, I see some disapproving uh, look, and now I realize that what I'm about to say might get me punched in the face. And so, and so I really back off in that situation. God designed us to have interpersonal connections that way, and body language matters. The online world really is a playland for the arrogant man because he can go and spout whatever he wants without any consequence, without without even a disapproving glance from his opponent. By the way, the danger in all of that for the arrogant man is that when he gets into an argument online, now he knows that there's an entire audience watching, and so he has to dig in. You have to dig in. You have to win the argument at any cost because if you dare to say, oh, I might be wrong... Now you've got hundreds of people who are seeing that admission, and so I'm better off just to dig in my heels and to win the conversation uh, at any cost. Do you know an individual who will fight to the mat, even to the point where you think they know they're wrong, but they just want to win the argument? That's the arrogant man or woman. Again, back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul assumes that Timothy will face serious opposition. Opposition from those who are even doing the bidding of Satan, and even to that degree of opposition, humility and gentleness is required. As elders, we are under constraint. No excuses about the sinfulness of the culture to justify an unchristlike response. Christ's church has always been called to shine as lights in the midst of darkness, to act as salt in the midst of decay. Our faith has been designed to rear up under such situations. And so to look at our current leader, to look at the current moral uh, context of our culture, and to use that then to justify a pugnacity or an opinionatedness or a quarrelsome attitude is absolutely wrong. Again, Paul's assumption was that Timothy's doing battle in Ephesus, where spiritual warfare was at its peak with those who were actually spouting uh, the words and the opinions and the values and the priorities of Satan himself, and yet he calls them to be gentle. The faithful elder does not quarrel. He can handle disagreements with grace, respond to his opponents with gentleness. He's not quick to label his detractors because he has a healthy conception of what are primary and secondary and tertiary issues. He recognizes there are but a few hills to die on. There's a few hills to die on, and there's vast expanses of plain between those hills. Dissenting fellow elders, difficult church members, lost church votes, sermon critics, online opponents, a hostile culture, all of this requires gentleness. The elder will face many circumstances which tempt him to argue, And again, the responsibility in all of this is to answer back to himself, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but gentle. So in conclusion, here then is a warning to the church. This warning to us. We're we're equipping this morning, right? Like we're, We're thankful when unbelievers come on a Sunday morning. If you're not a Christian here, we're thankful that you're here. But what are we actually doing here? We as a congregation are looking to the Word of God and we're being equipped. We're saying, okay, what ought we to be? What, what are our marching orders here from, from the Word of God? That's what we're actually doing here, right? And so here's a warning to all of us. Sometimes that man who looks 
to others as the go-getter, the mobilizer, that defender of truth, that great leader, is also a man given anger, given arrogance. Gets things done because he's willing to bully, intimidate, argue, and otherwise throw his weight around. Yet in such a situation, all of his accomplishments are hollow. They're not the product of the Spirit's work, but of an arrogant man who's chosen to use fleshly means to accomplish his desires. James tells us again in James chapter 1, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You have to use the Lord's means in order to receive the Lord's results. Whatever success an arrogant, angry man has experienced is not the product of the Holy Spirit, but of his own selfish ambition. Time will eventually reveal that, yes. James again tells us in James 3, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can be assured that no matter what good or what success, others are contributing to that dynamic leader. If he's bullied his way to the top, he's one day going to be exposed for what he is. His selfish ambition betrays the idea that he's operating in the, spirit of the, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. James there tells us that when someone is operating in the power of God, they'll be characterized by purity, peaceability, gentleness, with an openness to reason. On the other hand, James says that when a man is characterized by selfish ambition and argumentativeness and harshness and being closed to reason, he's operating in an entirely different spirit. And these are James' words, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In conclusion, again, my second conclusion. When Jesus knelt down before his unworthy disciples and washed their filthy feet, he set the standard for Christian leadership and the ceiling for human pride. When he had finished, he explicitly stated that he was setting an example for others to follow. If one would claim to be his follower, then he would not exalt himself above Jesus. After all, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a disciple above his teacher. And so by setting that standard, Jesus created a situation in which arrogance would not only be an offense against those before us, but an affront against Jesus himself. It's for this reason that an arrogant elder is an oxymoron. An elder is an under-shepherd who serves under the shepherd, and Jesus has set the ceiling of human pride. How could an arrogant man claim to be representing Jesus while persistently exalting himself above him? How could he claim to be shepherding like Jesus while abusing the sheep? Obviously, he could not. Elders must have confidence in Christ, yes. Boldness to proclaim the word, yes. Courage to stand against a hostile culture, yes. And an intolerance for error. We're required to have all of that. Yet we must carry all of that with meekness and gentleness and patience and wisdom. We don't like balance. We don't like moderation, and we don't like nuance, yet that's the balance that we're called to. As is apparent, most people can't manage that sort of balance. Either they see their calling to stand for truth as a justification for brashness, or their calling to gentleness as a cloak for cowardice. It's an increasingly rare individual who learns to consistently speak the truth in love. Yet, the Lord's standard for church leadership has not changed. 
It's only the man free from arrogance and anger and argumentativeness who's fit for the office of elder. And so, question, men, are you a humble servant of the Lord? Do you see your calling as a calling of stewardship and not an ownership? Would you be that type of man who is submissive to the Lord as master and committed to utilizing his means and operating with his methods and submitting to his measure of success? Are you that type of man who sees the church as an arena of service instead of a platform for your personal advancements? Are people merely stepping stones for your own recognition, or are they the very souls you are called to serve? Are weak people in irritation, full of baggage that hold you back, or are there people with burdens who you're willing to give yourself to willingly bear? Are difficult people targets of your anger or argumentativeness? Are they opponents to be defeated or people to be won? Do you confuse standing and oversight of the church as standing above the church? Do you see that you have the same potential for weakness? Do you see that you have the same need for the congregation as everyone else? As you consider those questions, men, search your heart. Question, first of all, do you have the desire for eldership? And then you possess that character which is qualified, which means that there isn't a shred of arrogance. As we close... If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we started out by saying that Jesus did a wonderful act of service and submission there in the upper room in John chapter 13. After dinner, he actually bowed down and washed the dirty feet of his disciples like a servant. But ultimately, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know of another act of service that Jesus did even greater than that one. Jesus said that he came as a son of man not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What that means is that the ultimate act of sacrifice which Jesus performed for us, the ultimate act of service was his dying on the cross for us. And so whereas he washed the dirty feet of his disciples, that was simply a picture. And that picture was that he was going to give himself and through his sacrifice on the cross, he was going to cleanse us from all of our sin. And so if you're here this morning, you need that cleansing. You need Jesus' sacrificial death for you on the cross. So I just encourage you this morning, place your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sin. Lord, forgive me for living for myself. I receive Jesus and Jesus alone as my Savior, who died to pay for my sin on the cross, and I want to live for him as my Lord, as my authority. If that's you this morning, pray that way, embrace him, and then come talk to us about baptism so you can make that public. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word and for its clarity. Pray you'd help us as a church to be equipped. I pray for the congregation. Uh, I pray you'd help us to recognize the relevance um, to texts like this and sermons like this as we're not here as a social club. We're not here to get pumped up uh, to face the week. Uh, we're here to learn more what it is to be your church. And I pray that you would use these sermons as training, as encouragement, as teaching, so that we can better be the church that you've designed us to be. So I pray that you'll give us a serious uh, sense of, of our authority and responsibility as a congregation to look out among us men who meet these qualifications and then to confidently be able to uh, appoint such men, knowing that we're doing so not because we're following our own desires, our own methods, our own means, but because we're submissive to your design in Scripture. So help us that way as a church. I pray that you produce men among us who have these qualifications. Pray your Holy Spirit would produce such men. 
and then help us as a congregation to recognize it. And then lastly, we just pray for those who are not yet Christians. I pray that they would receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that they too could experience that cleansing from sin and that full acceptance by you through Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for his church. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.